All right, we are rolling once again. This is the Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace podcast. I am Dr. Lee Grant. We have Kevin Pendergrass, as always, with us. And today we're joined by a special guest, Brother Brandon Johnson. Uh, Brandon, I met you a while back on a previous podcast that I used to host and run wherever I was cutting my teeth on the podcasting world. You joined me for a couple of episodes and had good insight. And I'm happy that you're here with us today, brother. Thank you for coming. Well, man, I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, a difficult subject, but a subject that we need to talk about. Yes, and that subject is pornography. Pornography is one of those skeletons in just about everyone's closet. Everybody just about has experience with this or has been affected by it or has been affected by someone who has consumed pornography or has viewed it. And this is one of those things that isn't talked about too often. It's not one of those things that's discussed within the church very often. And as prevalent of an issue as it is, it's odd that it's not discussed in in more of an open setting. And it really is sad that it's not discussed in more of an open setting. I think it's because it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It's something that a lot of people experience guilt with, so it's easier just to ignore it. But Brandon, in your position as a minister, you have taught on this before at your church in small groups and classes and from the pulpit, as I understand it. And Kevin and I thought you would be a really good fit to have on to to talk about the problem and then in our next episode to talk about solutions, possible solutions to the problem. Well, I don't, I don't know that I'm an expert on the on the subject, but uh, yeah, we have tackled it a few times um, publicly um, in some men's classes, as you said, the small group classes. Um, we've had some discussions about public teaching from the pulpit on it. Um, it's just something that really makes people uncomfortable, but frankly, there are more important things than people's comfort zones. And sometimes people are really grateful for addressing the issue, and sometimes people are just kind of left in an uncomfortable situation, but at the same time, uh, when we're dealing with an issue like this, bringing it into the light is the biggest is the biggest uh, biggest step we can make towards uh, addressing the issue and towards uh, success and overcoming it. Um, in fact, in my own life, uh, one, this is really an important topic to me. It's something that pornography is something that I have struggled with in my own life. In fact, um, I was diagnosed as a porn addict, had to go through counseling. Um, I, I actually um, kind of host or facilitate a support group for sex addicts. Uh, even to this day, uh, because it's something that's important to me. And from my own struggles and from the damage I've seen in my own life and the lives of others, uh, this this approach that we've taken of burying our head in the sand, ignoring the elephant in the room is not helping things. It's only making them worse. Um, it's not helping us. It's not helping other people that are struggling. And we really need to start talking about this, about solutions, start creating hope and start removing the guilt and shame and the darkness that we all hide in when we participate in pornography. Yeah, it's it's a big deal, and it's a really, really big issue. And it's one that I know whenever we were going through our um, series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and in some of the other discussions on grace that Kevin and I have had in previous episodes, Kevin, you have stated that this is something that you have had struggles with as well. Yeah, in fact, Brandon and I have been friends now for over a decade, and it's ironic because during that time, we were both extremely dogmatic. We were very legalistic and judgmental in the way that we viewed other people, and we didn't even know it, but at the time, we were both addicted to pornography. Uh, I mean, we both knew we were addicted to pornography. We didn't know the other was addicted to pornography, and one of the reasons why we never would discuss it is because our fear of how the other would judge us if we ever brought that up and tried to seek help. And I have been addicted to porn um, or was addicted to porn. And in fact, I've been porn free with by the grace of God since 2013. But I was addicted to porn for for many, many years up until I was about uh, 27 years old. And that was something 26, 27 years old, somewhere around there. And I this was something that was just part of my life. Pornography was a secret part of my life. I compartmentalized it. I justified it. And I never justified it in the sense of saying it was okay. But the way that I would usually end up trying to get around it is by saying, well, I know I shouldn't do it, but as soon as I'm done, I'm going to ask God to forgive me. And I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to do it again until another you know, few hours rolls around when I, when I want to do it again, and then that's going to be the last time. And then that's going to be the last time. And I I was, the irony here is I was preaching on modesty 
this whole time. I, I would do sermons and Bible articles and classes on the importance of modesty. And here I was looking up pornography. And not just every now and then, but this was something I was truly addicted to. And I remember one Sunday I had looked up pornography before going to service and I preached that day on modesty, condemning people even going to the to the beach or to the pool if they weren't covering themselves up like they should. And then I went back home and looked up pornography some more. In fact, Brandon, it was the congregation you were at when you had called, I think it was a summer series or something, when I had come out there to, to do a lesson on modesty. And I had already looked up pornography earlier, and then I looked up pornography when I got back home. That shows you the disconnect when it comes to this issue with so many people and just the the blatant problem that, I mean, like I said, this is something that nobody would have ever thought, well, Kevin probably has a porn problem, but I certainly did. And I did for many years. Well, and in addition to that, one thing I think we both can say is that pornography was not something that we encountered as an adult. We had our first interactions with pornography as, as children, um, young teenagers, and so by the time we reached adulthood, it was already a major part of our life, which, and we had practiced this and practiced the, as you called it, mental disconnect uh, for so long that it was just normal to us to condemn others and to be practicing something worse than what we were even condemning. Yeah, and this is something I write about in my, in my book, A Different Kind of Poison, because I'm talking about, I, I tie it back personally to, to my own legalism. And how it's so easy to look at the sins of everybody else while clearly ignoring your own. <laughs> and and the thing, too, with, with pornography and especially addiction, as we're going to get into here a little bit later, if you were to ask me if I was addicted to porn, I would have told you no every single time you would have asked. And here's why. I had deceived myself into believing I wasn't addicted. And that's usually how addictions work. Because in my mind, I even if I would have looked up uh, an hour or two before you asked me that question— in my mind, I had already said a prayer of forgiveness, asking God to forgive me. And so therefore, well, I'm no longer addicted. <laughs> and, right. and that was my way of always getting around it. And and I'm curious, you brought this up about the really your first encounter. I honestly don't really even remember uh, my first encounter. One reason I've looked up so much pornography in my life, I honestly, I mean, it, I, I don't even remember like when the first time was, but I do know it was probably around the, uh, like a 12 year old, 11, 12 year old time frame. Uh, I'm curious, when was, do you remember Brandon or what age you were when, when this was something you were first exposed to? I do actually, I do remember, um, I was a little bit older. I was a uh, 16, I worked for my dad. He had his own business and um, he, I had my own office, which is a, a bad idea for a 16-year-old. had my own computer, and I remember uh, accessing <laughs> porn on the internet as a 16-year-old in my own in my own office in my dad's own, own business. And uh, to this day, re remember that and uh, wish I had never taken that step because it led a long ways. But actually, Kevin, as young as you sound, uh, as your story sounds, uh, that's actually kind of the average um, statistics show that uh, 11 is about the average age that a child is first exposed to porn. Um, and by the age of 14, 94% of children have seen porn. So it's not something wow. that's just an adult problem. This, this gets started with children. And what's, what's scary is we're, we're just kind of finding some of this out. You think about how many 12, 13, 14-year-old kids have their own smartphones. And they have access to all those internet sites, those porn sites, uh, that we oftentimes think only adults are out. This is why the average age is so early, because we as parents are not paying attention, we're not talking, we're not being open about this, and our kids are being exposed, they're becoming addicted, and we have no idea that's even going on in their lives. Yeah, and that social disconnect and that erosion of our social fabric within our own families is part and parcel. It goes hand in hand with why this is such a big problem and why so many kids at such a young age are exposed to it. I remember my first exposure was at a sleepover and we had some of our friends over at the house and we had cable at the time. And I remember channel 14 was HBO, channel 15 was Cinemax and channel 16 was Showtime, but we didn't subscribe to those channels. But because it was an analog signal that came over the air, um, you would get some of the signal, but it was really, really fuzzy. And if you squinted real hard, you could kind of make out the picture that was going on in the background and you really couldn't hear the sound all that well. 
But at that age, you know, late at night, 1130, 12 o'clock, you know, there it was. That was that was my first exposure. Um, where my story differs from from yours is, is while it is something that I have seen, it's not something that I was ever really addicted to. It's not something that I've ever, I ever really just sought out all the time to look at all the time. But it is something that I have viewed. And I think if any you know, normal red-blooded American man is going to be honest with himself, he's going to say that he's probably looked at it too. What's interesting to me, though, is how statistically prevalent pornography is in Christian circles. You know, amongst some of the most conservative evangelical groups, the statistics indicate that that the consumption of pornography is actually quite high. It's rampant among Christians. And Brandon, I think you'd even mentioned this. It's, it's actually even growing. Its use is growing amongst Christian women as well. It is. Uh, actually, statistics show that there is very little, if any, difference between Christian usage of pornography and non-believer usage of pornography. There's basically no difference. Um, it's it's a it's a rampant problem, and it's it's really hard to get an exact number on it because the only way to find out is basically to self-report. But we're seeing things like seventy percent of of Christian youth pastors are saying that they've had one teen come within the last year and tell them they have a problem. Sixty-eight percent of church-going men uh, are saying they're they're viewing it. Fifty percent of uh, pastors have viewed uh, porn on a regular basis. And as you mentioned, uh, it, it's growing in the in the circle of women. We we oftentimes view pornography as a man problem. Um, but that's not the case anymore. Uh, the newer statistics are saying things like 33% of women age 25 and under search for porn at least once a month. Um, and even married women, the statistics are showing that married women, I think it's around 25%, say that they watch porn at least once a month. So this is not just a man problem. It's not just a problem outside the church. Frankly, it is it is an epidemic in the church amongst men especially, but also it's growing uh, with, amongst women. Well, Brandon, sometimes people can hear stats and they just ignore them or they don't really know how to comprehend it. They don't, they don't understand, like, let's to put that in perspective. So let's, let's kind of put some of these stats in perspective. What it's, it's seven what out of 10 minutes in church. Well, that's what I was going to say. So if, if you walk into, uh, and this isn't just people who have looked at it. These are people who are currently reporting that they're, they're involved in pornography and, and, and looking at it. So if you, if you think about that, um, I would say this Sunday when you when you go to your your church assembly, but uh, I don't know because of COVID. I don't know if you're gonna <laughs> what you're doing right now. But uh, whenever the next time you you attend your assembly, just just think about how uh, seven out of the ten men that you see are are currently involved in pornography. That that is that is massive. That and and here's what's crazy about it: nobody talks about it. Nobody they wants don't. to deal with it. And and one of the reasons why is because of how there have been so many church leaders and ministers and pastors who have personally experienced public shame over the use of porn. And if the leaders are going to be branded, what kind of message is that sending the members? And this is this is one of the problems I have so much with institutional Christianity. And by the way, I have a lot of problems with it. But this is just <laughs> one is... I have I've known of people who've been fired. I've known of people who you know have been just and I'm not talking about people who say, "Hey, I'm doing it. I'm going to keep doing it." Ha ha. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm not talking about uh, willful continuation with without any uh, without without any conscious of trying to overcome it. I'm talking about people who are just this is the way it is. This is the way I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are really trying uh, to overcome who who have admitted their fault and because they admitted it or because it was found out and now it's public that they've just been branded. And, you know, when, when I hear about that, I feel like saying, okay, well let's, let's bring up 70% of the men and, and let's go ahead and brand all of us here. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, it's shocking um, because it's, it, the reason it's shocking is because we're not talking about it and we're not living reality. We're, we're living in this alter reality as Christians that we've created that since we're Christians, we don't have sexual urges. We don't have sexual sins. And so when one of our own, especially one of our own leaders comes out that, they have been guilty of sexual sin, uh, we tar and feather them rather than showing the grace and mercy that Jesus showed to people who struggled with sexual sin. Now, I'm not saying we should overlook it, uh, but the answer is not to ostracize. It's not the guilt. It's not the shame. There's a, there's a lot better ways to deal with it. 
Yeah, the fact that this remains so prevalent is due to the widespread use of it, the shame that's associated with admitting that it's something that you struggle with and have a problem with, but also the reaction that tends to come about, like Kevin just talked about. You know, if you have these pastors and these preachers that are brave enough to go to their leadership and say, look, y'all, I've got a problem here and I need some help, and they're getting canned for it, they're getting fired, they're losing their job, they're losing their livelihood. If there are other preachers and other people that are in employed ministry who see this taking place, they're saying, well, you know, this guy got fired for that. Well, I'm not going to come forward with my struggles about it because I'm going to get fired too, and I can't afford to get fired. And you know, either it's swept under the rug or it's not something that's addressed at all. It may be talked about or mentioned in the pulpit, but talking about the issue, that's that's one thing that needs to happen to resolve it. But there's far more that needs to happen. And most churches do a very poor job of really addressing this idea and this problem in a way that lends itself to a real solution. And this is this is something, too, that the, the idea of of lusting in the heart. Because ultimately, that's what we're talking about, is is lusting in the heart. Whether you're a male, whether you're a female, th- that's what it boils down to. And lust, lust in the heart has always been an issue. It, it has always been a problem. And I, I think about even when you do historical research, how there 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 have been images of of you know basically sex positions and 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 things drawn on tablets and 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 recorded because this is something that obviously has always been a reality in some form or fashion but Brandon the fact of how addicting it's becoming the 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 lust aspect is not new but the with technology this has provided another element because now there seems to be more people becoming addicted not just viewing it which neither of or none of us believe that's okay but now that it's it's another level because it's not just people viewing it which is wrong but there's also this addiction that's happening why why are we seeing more of an addiction to pornography and to to lust in the heart than perhaps we have in perhaps ever but especially in recent generations well that's a great question kevin in fact it's something that our psychological community and, and those who are doctors in that area are really just coming to grips with over the last decade um, is that porn is now so readily available through our smartphones, through our computers, um, through streaming services um, to our, our homes, through TV. Before you think back 25, 30 years ago, if you wanted to view porn, what'd you have to do? You, you didn't have a smartphone. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have a laptop. You, you either had to have some sort of special cable service or you had to go to the store uh, on the wrong side of the tracks and hope that you weren't seen by someone that you knew. And then you had to walk up to the counter and endure the embarrassment of paying for something that you didn't want somebody to know you were going to be viewing later. It's just so much more accessible now. You literally can carry millions and millions of pages of porn in your back pocket in your smartphone. Um, our kids can, we can, it's so readily available. And not only is it readily available, we can access it without risking any form of embarrassment, without putting really any effort forward. And so people are accessing it at an earlier age. They're accessing it much more readily because there's, there's really no consequences. There's no risk as far as people finding out, as far as embarrassment and shame. And so it, it really has created this problem in a younger age group and it's much more readily available. And in addition to that, we're learning that uh, video forms of pornography are much more addictive than just still images. And there are literally millions and millions of pages of that readily available on the internet for the young and old alike to readily access. I don't know if you have this stat available, but I was I was in your class when you were teaching this uh, last year at the, the congregation where, where you're at. And... You had you had brought up a stat about some of the more popular porn websites and just how many I don't know if it was how many people or hits they were receiving at, at a certain amount of time or how many hours had been downloaded, but it was just something astronomical. Do you have that stat or do you know what I'm even talking about? Do you remember? Yeah, what I'm I've, I've got a few to? of them. I'll, I'll go through a couple of them here for you. Uh, one of them is over 40 million. Well, like, Americans. Like, like, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. The average visit lasts 6 minutes and 29 seconds. There are around 42 million porn websites, which total around 370 million pages of porn. 
The porn industry's annual revenue, this is going to blow your mind, the porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It is also more than the combined revenues of wow. ABC, CBS, and NBC. It's uh, it's Wow. It's terrifying. It really is. If you realize the severity of the problem, it's terrifying. Well, I, I want to step back, too, because I, I want to kind of establish the fact that why this is so wrong. There may be people listening to this thinking, well, yeah, but it, it's really not that big of a deal. P- pornography is something that's between me and God. It, I'm not involving myself with another individual. It's already been recorded, whether I look at it or not. Uh, so it's it's really something that, you know, that I don't personally maybe think is the best thing. But come on, guys. I mean, it's really not that big that bad, right? I mean, I know we're not supposed to do it, and Jesus talks about how we're not supposed to do it, but is it really that big of a deal? And a couple of things come to mind that I would like to to bring up. First of all, I think of David. I think of David, how he stepped out and saw Bathsheba, and she was taking a bath. And she she was you know basically pornography right I mean this is this mm-hmm. was ancient pornography you just you know okay I'm just going to go up on the rooftop here and, and and turn it to the the porn channel here and so here he is seeing her bathing and what happens just well we would say lust in the heart but that's not where it stopped uh, he ended up finally having sex with her ended up getting her pregnant. And then ended up eventually having her husband killed. He he murdered her husband indirectly in order to to be able to say to to say face in order to to make himself feel justified so this wouldn't come out. When you think about all of those actions, on the surface that may seem like an exception to the rule, but we see this progression, and this progression is not just found in the life of David, but I want to bring up an example that probably a lot of people are familiar with, but they don't realize how much pornography played a, a role in this, and that's Ted Bundy. Most people know of Ted Bundy as, as a serial killer, one of, probably one of the most popular serial killers and rapists, and he actually admitted over 30 homicides between 74 and 78. We don't really know even what the actual account is. That's just how many he admitted to. But the night before he was put to death, and this was in 1989, so this was before everybody had their smartphones and everybody had access to, you know, on their tablets and computers. This was 1989, okay, when when he said this. He was interviewed by Dr. uh, James Dobson, and he actually said this. He said, like most other kinds of addiction, I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, more graphic kinds of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder, harder, something which gives you a greater sense of excitement until you reach the point that pornography can only take you so far. He went on to say, I've lived in prison a long time now. I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence just like me. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography. Without question, without exception, deeply influenced and consumed by addiction to pornography. Now, Bundy was well known for for giving some conflicting information from time to time, but this is what he said in an interview right before uh, the night before he was he was executed. So w- most people, regardless of what they believe on Ted Bundy, realize now what Bundy had to say was true. That we didn't have all the stats and the facts that we have today. He was already giving us this information. In fact, stats report similar findings uh, when it comes to violent crimes and rape. According to an article on CBN News, the FBI said porn is found at 80% of the scenes of violent sex crimes are in the homes of the offender and find out that they are a regular user of pornography. And police officers say that porn use is one of the most common profile traits of serial murders and rapists. The bottom line is this isn't just something that you're looking at and you realize it's wrong and then you ask God to forgive you. This is this is very serious what we're talking about here. And I, I don't mean to imply that every single person who's looked at pornography or has been addicted is, is going to turn up, you know, end up being a, a rapist or end up, uh, you know, impregnating women through adultery or, or end up killing people. But what I am saying is that there is so much tied back to pornography. And even if it doesn't get to that point, there's a lot of other consequences that come along with it. That's well, right. and pornography is people are finally starting to study this on a scientific and on a clinical level. 
And in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, which is a peer-reviewed journal that's published in different psychological circles, this is where scientific research, the findings are published, and the uh, healthcare providers and people that take care of people, whether it's behavioral health or, or whatever field of healthcare they're in, this is where people learn and healthcare professionals learn what the best way forward is. This is one of the ways that, that they learn that. And one of the things that this journal said is that if pornography addiction is viewed objectively, evidence indicates that it does indeed cause harm in humans with regard to pair bonding. And what they found in this in this research journal that they did was is they looked at different people, a, a wide variety of people. I think it was somewhere around a thousand different couples. And what they had, <clears throat> excuse me, what they had done was is they had um, viewed their relationship, the health of their relationship, the bond that the husband and wife felt that they shared with one another. And they looked at the cross-reference in pornography consumption and how they um, how that affected their bond with one another. And what they found was, is in those relationships in which porn was a factor that the pair bonding and the bond that these couples experienced and felt with one another was strongly diminished and strongly reduced. And this isn't just something that's just between you and God. Ultimately it is between you and God, but this is something that will and can affect your relationship with your spouse. This is something that will affect the trust that your spouse has with you. This is something that can affect how you grow together and how you move forward in this life together. It's something that has very real consequences. And here's, here's what's scary about what you just said. There are a lot of people, and I'll go as far to say this, and I'm going to put a qualifier just in case people are listening and their wives are listening. <laughs> I, I don't know of a single person, or, or well, I'll say male, who I have discussed pornography with who has not told me that they either have looked it up or are currently looking it up. Every there, there's There's been zero exception to that rule. Now, here is is what we are starting. I personally am starting to hear more of. Now, I don't know. I don't have any stats or anything like this, so this may just be my limited perspective here. But it appears that it's becoming more accepted. And I've actually heard wives, and I'm talking about Christian people here. I've actually heard uh, Christian wives say, well, look, I don't really enjoy the fact that my husband looks at pornography, but you know, I'm I'm okay with it as long as that's all he does, as long as he's not after other women, I'm fine with it. I'm I'm cool with it. It's okay. And it's it seems like it's becoming more accepted. And even and when I say okay with it, it's not that you know, some of these wives are gung ho with it. No, oh, this is great. They're just like, well, okay, I just kind of see it like, you know, maybe, maybe a hobby I don't really appreciate or think he should be involved in. But, but I mean, you know, he could be doing a lot worse. And, and so there seems to be almost the, you know, Brandon quoted all these different stats earlier because it is so rampant. It's almost like instead of that being a shock factor to help people realize we need to combat this it's become this justification like, well, everybody's doing it. And, and, and it is the truth that like literally most people have done or are doing this. And instead of trying to overcome it, it's almost become an excuse because it's so prevalent. And, and, and I want to bring this up too, because there may be people listening who go, well, this doesn't affect my marriage or I may not even be married. So, you know, those stats really don't bother me. Um, Brandon, tell us a little bit about how this can affect, you know, not just, uh, your relationships with people, but also just everyday, pra uh, you know, practicality. How, how can how can pornography play a role in that? Well, I can tell you a personal experience of my own. Uh, while I was addicted to pornography, tried many times uh, to stop. That's part of the addiction process. Um, but I had one of the best jobs, best paying jobs, best uh, jobs I ever had with benefits and time off. Um, I lost that job because I looked up pornography on the job on my company computer, um, violated their uh, internet use policy. And I lost that, put my, my, not only my family in financial despair, but myself in financial despair. Um, I know Lee has even brought up, uh, some of the health issue. He might want to talk about that some more, but we're actually finding out today. This will, this will really stand out to some of the guys listening. Um, pornography causes erectile dysfunction. Um, you watch so much yep. porn on the, you know, on the internet or on TV that you get to the point where 
uh, a real live woman, you can't get it up. And, and, you know, yeah. if that doesn't speak to a man's uh, manhood, I don't know what will. Well, and that part of the issue has to do with the addictive nature. And I know that that's something we were going to more get into towards the end of the podcast, but different medical groups and psychological groups and neurological groups are beginning to look at pornography addiction as a bona fide brain-based addiction, not unlike a drug addiction or food addiction. And for so long, it was considered more of a psychological addiction. And when you look at addiction, there's you have chemical addiction, you have psychological addiction, someone who gets addicted to opioids. We've all heard of the opioid crisis that's going on where people are being prescribed painkillers and they develop a chemical addiction to those painkillers where they literally cannot function unless they put those chemicals into their body. It's, it's been a big deal. It's been a huge, huge issue in the healthcare field. That's a chemical addiction. Now, if you look at something like marijuana, this is something that is not chemically addictive. Cannabis is not a chemically addictive substance at all, but research is showing that it does have addictive properties. What that means is, is while cannabis is not chemically addictive, it can become psychologically addictive. People use cannabis, they experience that euphoria, they experience that high, and there are some people in the population who that provides such a, a profound escape for them in their lives and what they experience. They become psychologically addicted to the effect of cannabis. So while they're not chemically addicted to it, they are psychologically addicted to it. As it relates to pornography, most people in, in healthcare and psychology have viewed pornography as a psychological addiction, but they're starting to see that the consumption of pornography actually changes how the brain works, not unlike food addiction does. In 2006, there was a study um, done that looked specifically at obesity, and what the results showed in those who have a food addiction is that the addictive pathway that takes place in the brain is very similar to how the brain becomes addicted to cocaine and methamphetamine. And what this study demonstrated, and I'll go ahead and read from that. I've got some notes here. It demonstrated multiple areas of volume loss, particularly in the frontal lobes of the brain, areas associated with judgment and control. This study is significant in demonstrating visible damage in a natural endogenous addiction as opposed to an exogenous drug addiction. Furthermore, it is easy to accept intuitively because the effects of overeating can be seen in, in the obese person. And what this shows is, is that an endogenous addiction is that psychological addiction. An exogenous addiction, that's something from the outside, like you're consuming drugs. And what they found is, is that the pathway of food addiction neurologically is very similar to drug addiction. Well, they took that a step further. And, and in this study, he says this, growing evidence indicates that the VTA-NAC pathway, that's a neurological pathway where different parts of the brain talk to each other, and the other limbic regions, that's the area of the brain associated with emotion, cited above similarly mediate, at least in part, the acute positive emotional effects of natural rewards such as food and sex. The same regions have also been implicated in the so-called natural addictions, that is, compulsive consumption for natural rewards, such as pathological overeating, pathological gambling, and sexual addictions related to pornography. Preliminary findings suggest that shared pathways may be involved, cross-sensitization that occurs between natural rewards and drugs of abuse. So that's a bunch of $10 words that describes this. Whenever you do drugs, your brain becomes chemically dependent on those drugs and needs those drugs to function appropriately. If you don't put those drugs in, your brain doesn't function appropriately and you spiral. They say the same thing happens in food addiction and the same thing happens in pornography addiction. The same changes happen to the brain and you get hooked in much the same way. It has a neurological effect. It's not just, oh, I'm going to look at this and I'll never look at it again. If you get addicted to pornography, it is a bona fide addiction that is as strong, if not stronger than addiction to hard drugs. That's exactly right. And I, and I right, want to interject something. I, I oh. want to interject something. And, and, and Brandon, I want to bring you into this too, because I, I think that when it comes to the idea of porn addiction, there are going to be more people who are listening to this, who are going to be uh, kind of dismissing this. Well, I'm, I'm not a porn addict. I, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I may look at porn every now and then, but I'm not a porn addict. 
And Brandon, I know you have done a lot of study on this because a lot of people who are porn addicts, in fact, I dare say probably the majority of people who are porn addicts don't really think that they actually are porn addicts. And, and I know we have known some individuals through, through the different meetings because I'm, I'm part of the group that Brandon hosts um, when it comes to, to, to porn addiction and, of course, other sexual addictions as well. And there have been individuals who will tell us when it comes to just this whole idea that, well, I, I'm not really ad- addicted to it. I mean, I, I may struggle with it. Are there maybe some who only only look at it every now and then, but they are still considered addicted? So can you kind of go into that a little bit? Because whether someone's actually addicted to pornography or not, the issue is how to overcome it. So the last thing that I want anybody to do who's listening to this is think, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not actually addicted. So what would you say to somebody who is in that category, Brandon? Well, I think uh, one of the best ways I heard it put was uh, from actually a sex addiction counselor. He was uh, actually the guy that uh, counseled me and he said, well, if you're not addicted to pornography, then just stop. And uh, for those of us who have struggled with pornography, we know the ludicrousy of that statement because we can't just stop because we we recognize that there's an addiction. So for those who are who would like to say that they're not addicted to porn, they view it sometimes but they don't, but they but but they're not addicted. I would say, well then just stop. And if you think to yourself, well, I would or I've tried, then there's probably a lot more to it than you just look at pornography every now and then. There's probably an there's probably an addiction uh, that's taking place in in your in your brain. In fact, um a lot of people deny that they're addicted simply because they don't look at it hours and hours every day. And addiction is not is not defined based upon necessarily the frequency uh, of of acting out. Addiction is is uh, defined based upon ten or eleven principles. Um, and I'd, if we got some time, I'd like to go over those just kind of briefly, just maybe to help people identify oh an addiction. Yeah, now, absolutely. What's interesting about these uh, these principles of addiction is that they're universal. They're the same principles that are used to identify uh, addiction, whether it's a drug addiction, whether it's a food addiction, a gambling addiction, or in, in this case, a sexual addiction. Uh, they're the same criteria. The first one is loss of control. Um, you do more than what you intend to do. So in, in the porn realm, uh, loss of control would be you only intended to look at porn for a couple of minutes and you find yourself an hour and a half later still sitting in front of your computer. Um, that would be just one example. Um, second criteria is compulsive behavior. Uh, it's a pattern of acting out of uh, control. Um, it might be that uh, you do something, you, you look at porn when it's not really a good time to look at porn, when it's risky. Um, the third uh, criteria is efforts to stop. And this is this is a really good indicator um, because most Christians recognize that looking at porn is wrong, so they look it up. As Kevin had so clearly uh, stated earlier, you got that guilt that comes up. You've looked at porn, you feel guilty. You know you shouldn't have done it. You pray and you say, "I'm never going to do that again." That was the last time, and uh, you find yourself weeks, months, years down the road realizing that you have said that over and over and over again, and yet you're still looking at porn. Uh, sometimes that's even in the face of uh, some severe consequences, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, loss of time. This again is similar to that uh, that loss of control. Whereas uh, you find yourself not being efficient in your time, you're wasting time at your job. I mentioned earlier that I, I lost a really good job that I had, and uh, you know, rightfully so. Not only had I violated uh, their internet use policy, I had wasted valuable time that I should have been using. Um, to do my job and to uh, make the company more efficient. And instead, I was using that to look up pornography online. Uh, Preoccupation, which is the idea of obsessing uh, because of uh, or obsessing over the behavior. It's uh, when you just constantly think about it or when when you do think about it, you just can't get your mind off of it. That's that idea of preoccupation. Uh, The sixth one is uh, the inability to fulfill obligations. Your behavior, whatever that addictive behavior is, it interferes with your work, your school, your family, your friends. You find yourself being late to things because you were too busy looking at porn. Uh, You find yourself uh, not doing well at work because you're preoccupied with it. Um, You find your family relationships, as Lee and Kevin both talked about, you find those things suffering because you're spending too much time looking at porn. Uh, The continuation despite consequences. 
I know for me, this has been a big thing in my life that uh, God has given me many, many opportunities to break my addictive cycle with pornography by giving me consequences. So one of those being the loss of my job. Um, and this is something that addicts oftentimes uh, deal with. You've, you've heard uh, from on media and, and I'm sure other sources for uh, where you hear about uh, famous people who have had relapses and in the uh, in the area of sexual addiction, there are relapses and there are consequences that come with every single one of them. But we oftentimes find ourselves relapsing because of the addiction. There's also uh, escalation, which we've talked about a little bit, which is that idea that you need more. You need something more intense, more frequent, more risky. Um, you know, oftentimes when uh, kids encounter pornography, you know, they, they get that high from just a still image. But if they continue to view pornography before long, it has to be something more intense. It has to be something more often. It has to be a video or something along those lines. Um, uh, the ninth one is losses. Again, that idea that you have lost something uh, because of your of your uh, addictive behavior. And then the withdrawal. When you uh, the last one is ten is withdrawal. When you actually stop that addictive behavior, and man, it, it makes you feel bad. Uh, you become obsessive. Uh, sometimes there are some actual literal physical implications uh, because you're withdrawn, uh, having those withdrawals from from your sexual behavior. Now, here's the interesting thing. There's some people, I'm sure, that are listening to this podcast right now, and they're thinking, man, I don't do all 10 of those things. That, that sounds like a life of misery. And trust me, it is a life of misery. But addiction is not defined because you check every one of those 10 boxes. When you check two of those 10 boxes, you are technically, you would be diagnosed as an addict, whether that's in the field of sexual addiction, in the field of, of a drug addiction or food addiction or gambling addiction, whatever it might be. If you check just two of those, of those criteria, you would be considered an addict. Uh, for me, I remember when I went in and I was, I was extremely addicted to porn. When I went into my counselor in the very first session, he sat down, he went through these with me. He didn't tell me up front that it was, I only needed two of the 10. He said, how many of those apply to you? I said, oh, probably six or seven. And I was feeling pretty good about only six or seven. And he said, well, it only <laughs> two to be an addict. And I was like, wow, okay. I, I guess I'm a lot worse off than I realized. Um, so for those of you who are listening, you know, it, loss of control, compulsive behavior, efforts to stop, loss of time, preoccupation, inability to fulfill obligation, continuation despite consequences, escalation, losses, or withdrawal. If you check two of those boxes, a psychologist or counselor would, would tell you that you're addicted. And that's not something that you need to that you need to ignore. It's also not something you need to be in despair about, but it's something that needs to move you to action. And uh, I think that's something we'll probably... It's not something about. you should take lightly. No, no. So, uh, uh, so, Lee, so, you so with that you said... To... Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just... I mean, with, with... Oh, that's fine. That's fine. I think we have just a slight delay with your audio. I think that's why there's a little bit of overtalk going on, but we're still getting through it and we're doing a good job. Everything's working out great. Um, it's it's a good discussion. It, it's interesting to me, though, in that, you know, being a healthcare provider and having taken, you know, some clinical psychology classes, not so we can be psychologists as, as chiropractors, but just so we can recognize some of those signs of addiction that you just talked about. And so that we can provide the appropriate referral to those patients who would who would need that type of that type of help. I didn't know that it only took two of those things in order to be an addict. That's something that I had either learned and it had slipped my mind. It was, it's brand new to me. And that's really sobering whenever you think about it, because one of the things that we all tend to do is we all tend to minimize whenever you're involved in any type of addictive behavior, you tend to minimize just how bad off you have it. Oh, I'm not an addict. Oh, I'm not that bad. Oh, I can stop anytime you want. And that pointed question that your counselor asked you or, or that statement that he made was, well, if you're not addicted, just stop. Oh, well, okay. Then maybe I am addicted. You know, that's one of the tools they have in their box to kind of help you see where, where maybe you are falling short. But in, in the time that we have left with this, because this is a religious podcast, we've talked quite a bit about why this is a problem and how it's a problem. In our next episode, we're going to really get into the solutions. But what are some of the solutions? And I say that in, in air quotes, but what are some of the things that churches are doing now? Because if, if we look at what the churches are doing now, 
this isn't something that's addressed all that often. It's not something that's really discussed outside of, you know, an occasional mention from the pulpit or a sermon about it, but there's no real action taking place to stem the tide of addiction in on this topic anyway. So why does it seem like that the, that the churches are ineffective in addressing this? Well, frankly, because they are ineffective. The, uh, in fact, uh, statistics show that only like 7% of churches actually have a program to help people who are struggling with pornography. 7%. You think about the other statistics we've talked about, 7 out of your 10 guys in your church is actively struggling with porn, and probably 2 or 3 out of every 10 women in your church is struggling with porn, and only 7 out of 100 churches have a plan to deal with it? Wow. Think think about that on the on the scale or on the issue of COVID that we're dealing with right now. Think about if we the, everybody was ignoring it like it wasn't really a problem. We have an epidemic with pornography in the church, like we have an epidemic with COVID in the world right now. Yeah, and I want to I want to interject something here, Brandon, and, and if you're okay talking about this because when you did your own series and lessons on. Um, on pornography, it, it it wasn't really received all that well. Am I am I right on that? Is that okay to to bring this up? Sure, sure. Yeah, it was. That would probably be a good way to put it. There was there were some individuals that received it well and were really grateful. Um, but it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I think um, I hate to say this because it sounds judgmental, but I think statistics back it up. Frankly, I think a lot of discomfort is because there's a lot of guilt. Um, there's a lot of guys who are looking at porn, and so when you talk about it, you're talking to them. And it's really hard for them to be open about it. And frankly, it's even it's it's even more disappointing when you try to talk about it amongst church leadership, and it's like talking to an empty room oftentimes. And again, you can't help but, but realize there's probably a lot of guilt even amongst church leadership. Um, and it's time we get past that. It's something has got to change this, this idea of ignoring it. The idea of, you know, we're just going to pretend it's not there is only causing it to become worse. Well, and I've, and I've found out from personal experience that, and, and this is probably, I would say true of most addictions and, and just most accusations in general, but those who are guilty tend to be the ones who minimize and dismiss and get offended the most Whereas those who are open about it, those who have either overcome it or they're, they're still struggling with it, but they, they're aware of their situation and they're working through it, are, t- tend to be pretty open about it. Uh, I, I know that finally when I came to that realization that this was something I was really, truly had a problem with. This wasn't, you know, this was something that I, I had kept secret and, and I had justified because it was a quote unquote private thing. And then I realized, well, this is, this is wrong. You know, this is something that I, I need to overcome. And ever since then, I've been very outspoken. I've been very open and vulnerable. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm saying because I see other people like yourself, Brandon, doing the same thing. And many others who, once they kind of, you know, come out with it, they're like, yeah, you know, this is something I'm struggling with, or this is something I'm, I've overcome or whatever it may be. It's those who don't want to just talk about it. It's those who say, nope, out of sight, out of mind. Quite frankly, those are the individuals that worry me and disappoint me and frustrate me the most. Because while other people are trying to do something about a problem they've already admitted, more than likely there's a good percentage of people who are refusing to do something about a problem that they have not admitted. And that's, that is just really frustrating to me to see among so many different Christian groups. Well, and it, it's, it goes back to that old adage that the first step to solving a problem that you have is admitting that you have a problem in the first place. And there's a lot of people that are not willing to admit they have a problem in any facet, you know, never mind pornography itself. You know, that's one of those deep-seated, deep-rooted things that, that people often struggle with. But I think part of the reason why we tend to either experience pushback or sermons like that or or lessons like that, or maybe even podcasts like that are not well received are because the environment has really been created in which sexual sins tend to be worse than all the other sins. You know, it's almost like God can forgive you if you kill somebody and you're repentant. But if, you know, you have sex before you're married, oh, well, you're going to carry that guilt around with you for the rest of your life. You know, it's, 
we we tend to elevate sexual sins and put them on such a high pedestal as far as how awful and terrible and horrid they are. And we tend to give other things a pass. So then whenever you begin to look at something like pornography, which is something that is incredibly prevalent, well, then basically we're guilty of the worst possible sin that you could be involved with. And that's a sexual sin. And I think that's part of the issue. I think that's part of why there's such a stigma attached to it and why we can't really have a discussion about it. Because that, that's really the first step to resolving this is being able to talk about it amongst ourselves and support one another and build one another up so that we can overcome it. Well, that's exactly right, Lee. And, and frankly, you would think that place would be church, right? You would think that place would be amongst believers. Uh, in fact, Scripture makes that so clear. Um, if you were to go through and think about all the people in Scripture who, who are really well-known, especially in the Old Testament, how many of those have some very significant sexual sins in their stories? When you think about it, Kevin's already brought up David. We, we have um, just over and over again, story after story in the Old Testament of people who have sexual sins in their, in their history, in their story, and yet they're still part of the story of faith. And for some reason, we have flipped that script in the modern church and it's like, if you have sexual sin in your life, you can't be a story of faith. And that's really sad. Yeah. Oh, it's incredibly sad. I mean, you look at Rahab the harlot declared as a hero of faith. She's a prostitute, you know, and there have been efforts made to uh, sugarcoat her and say that she was an innkeeper. It's like, no, she was a whore. She was a prostitute. Uh -huh. She ran a brothel and, you know, she is you know, spoken of highly, you know, in the hall of faith over there in the book of Hebrews, you know, you take a look at David, a man after God's own heart, who we referenced earlier, who, you know, saw Bathsheba taking a bath and had her husband killed and committed adultery and all this other nonsense, all this other, you know, heinousness that happened. He's regarded as a man after God's own heart. And that doesn't mean that, oh, well, it's okay and you can get off scot-free and just do whatever you want and look at whatever you want and engage in whatever activity you want to engage in. It just means you're not beyond redemption. If you have struggled with this, you're struggling with something that's common to man. You're struggling with something that can be overcome through Christ. And it's not something that is going to have its claws in you forever, but it's going to take work and it's going to take openness. But instead of being able to go to your brothers and sisters with this issue, with these concerns and being able to be open about it, you don't. It's just like Kevin was mentioning at the top of the podcast, you know, he didn't say anything to you about because he knew that you'd condemn him to a devil's hell. You didn't say anything to Kevin about because you knew Kevin would definitely condemn you to a devil's hell because that's just how Kevin was. But, you know, it's that's it's one of those things. Either that or you implicitly condemn your brethren. You know, there's condemnation. There's plenty of condemnation to go around, but there's very, very little grace to be extended to those who struggle with this. Well, and here's the thing. If someone would have told me that they were looking up porn, even during that time I was, I would have condemned them just as hard as I would condemn anybody else. How dare you? I can't believe you're doing that. You know, wow, look, look, look at you. Look at, I can't believe that you would be involved in something like that. So there are, and some of that was just me trying to justify what I was doing, because that's that's always part of hypocrisy is we're we're wanting to try to change the subject to somebody else other than ourselves. So we can we can minimize what we're doing and we can uh, really just over exaggerate what other people are involved in. And this is something that I know personally for me, the way that it blinded me. The way that it blinded me, my own sin and the sins of others, and I, I've, I love this uh, an analogy. I heard people say that usually when it comes to our own, own sins, we want to use a telescope. But when it comes to the sins of others, we use a microscope. And pornography is one of those issues. I think that's what we do is we want to take our own sins and, oh, no, they're there, but I acknowledge that I'm a sinner or that I fall short. But everybody else, we're going to put you under a microscope and we're really going to examine every little thing that you've done wrong or every little thing you're involved in. And earlier, y'all were talking about just creating the environment where sex, sexual sin is worse than other sins. And we even do that within sexual sin. And I'm not saying that there are not different consequences that are involved in different sexual sins, but I have known of, of elderships and pastors who 
will on the one hand condemn someone who has been involved in some type of sexual sin, but then turn around and justify their own sexual sin because they claim it's not as bad. And and those are the, these types of hypocritical, inconsistent environments we've created where we have tried to make one sin uh, not as bad in the eyes of God as, as another sin. And until we can create environments where, like, like Brandon, when you teach on this, that it can be received well. I know that that you got some pushback from people of well, you know, we don't want to we don't want to talk about this in public. It may make wives feel uncomfortable. Well, truth is going to make people feel uncomfortable. And if if the fact of the matter is this is something something's involved in, I always tell uh, wives, ask your husbands if they're involved in pornography. And and you know, when I say things like that, people look at me like I'm crazy. And I said, look, if we're going to be honest about this, there has to be a level of accountability. And the best question. This is this is the the one thing that I have learned probably more than anything else through this when it comes to how to know if someone is truly addicted and truly involved and not in a way to coerce, not in a way to scare, not in a way to fear, but in order to wake people up. And that is a lot of times I, well, I was counseling someone one time and they said, well, I'm not addicted to pornography. And I said, okay, I said, I, that's that's fine. And uh, but this is something you struggle with. Right. And he said, yeah, I said, well, when was the last time you looked at pornography? And for a moment, he just paused and he said, well, I looked at it right before I met with you. I said, "Okay, well, when was the time before that? He said, well, earlier that this morning. Well, when was the time before that? He said, last night. I said, but you're not addicted, right? He goes, no. (laughs) And so so sometimes you have to ask. And of course, finally, he he came to the conclusion, yes, I am. But sometimes it's a matter of, of having to ask those pinpointed questions in love. And, and there are ways that we're going to be talking about this here in the next episode, because right now it's been all dark and gloomy. It's all been looking at the problem. And in the next episode, we're going to be looking for solutions. But I, I, that is one question that if you sincerely and honestly want to have a conversation with someone about this, and they're willing to, because you can't coerce or force people to do anything they don't want to do. But if they're willing to have this conversation, simply ask, when was the last time you looked at pornography? And you will be shocked. People will be shocked. If, if, if every church member would do that right now to somebody, they would be absolutely shocked. And they shouldn't be because stats already tell us this is the truth, but we either deny it or dismiss it altogether. Yeah, and that has to stop. That has to come to an end. Otherwise, it's just going to continue to perpetuate. Well, as we begin to wrap this up and bring it to a close, we pretty much covered everything we wanted to cover for our first episode that describes this. And I think in summary, we can say pornography is one of those things that within the church and within with just within society itself, especially within the church, it's an issue. It is a problem and it's one that needs to be addressed. It is prevalent. Our churches do not currently give us a safe place in which these things can be discussed so that we can overcome it. And the judgment of our fellow citizens within the kingdom of Christ, I don't want to say judgment, condemnation needs to stop. We need to build one another up, lift one another up so that we can overcome this. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. Brandon, do you have anything that you want to add before we bring this episode to a close? Uh, Not really. Just uh, again, thank you guys for being willing to talk about a subject that is really uncomfortable and really needs to be talked about. Appreciate you both for being willing to tackle it. Absolutely. Kevin, do you have anything else you want to add before we sign off for this episode? I would just encourage everyone to research this to see how prevalent it is, but also how dangerous it is that this is this is not something that is innocent it's not something that is harmless a lot of uh, sex trafficking can be tied back to pornography i mean there's just so many horrible atrocities that 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 always go you can almost trace it back to where it started and that's pornography and very rarely does it end with pornography i know brandon can verify that with with a lot of individuals he's spoken to a lot of counselors can verify that i know i can verify that with the people i've spoken with that sometimes it does but but you know we're we're hoping to interrupt that before it goes further than it has to sure yeah one last statistic i'd like to leave kind of go with kevin is that pornography for those of guys who are married or who hope to be married pornography increases your chances of uh, an extramarital affair by 300% that that should rock some people's worlds Man. Wow. Wow. 
Well, Brandon, thank you so much for agreeing to come on here. I think this was a really good discussion. It was a good way to begin the discussion. Next episode, we will discuss the solutions that come. Like Kevin said, this is kind of a doom and gloom episode. It might seem hopeless, but never fear. There is always a way out. That's what we'll discuss next time is how we can deal with this, how churches can better address this pandemic and this issue. Once again, we want to thank everyone for listening. We love all of you in our audience. Email us with any suggestions or questions that you have. Um, Give us that five-star review and that five-star rating on iTunes. We thank all of you very much, and we will see you all soon.